Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing technical difficulties. This is the Bobby Cast. Welcome to part two of the Bobby Cast. That's all about behind the scenes of the music industry. In this episode, you're going to hear stories from legendary music executive Joe Galante, who is now in the Country Music Hall of Fame. From producer Nathan Chapman, maybe you would know him from some Taylor Swift the general manager of Garth and Trisha's record labels, Leslie Simon, and then a whole lot more. So let's get right into it. Kicking off part two of Behind the Scenes of the Music Industry, Marcus K. Dowling. Marcus is a country music reporter. He's a journalist for the Tennessean. He talks about his process for writing stories that are compelling and what he learned from Ronnie Dunn, the lead singer of Brooks and Dunn. For me, a good writer or even a good curator, they don't have an agenda, but they have an agenda at the same time to to give people a different outlook or maybe expose them in a different way. Yeah, you're, you're dead on with that. So so there's no agenda in that you're going to create a story, but maybe, and I'm not saying you, I'm just going to do the no. universal you. Yeah. I'll do me. I'll do me. Hey, right. I'm, it's, no, we can do me. It's, it doesn't matter either way. So I don't want to feed you some bull crap and, make, and, and give you some false facts, but I definitely have a perspective constantly and consistently about how I feel about this genre. And mm-hmm. I've been praised and ridiculed at the highest points on both. Yeah. And I've always had this perspective and it's mine and I own it. Now, here are you, you're here now and you're writing. You are yeah. writing for the biggest, the most powerful publication that writes on country music. So you have to have that, not an agenda to, to make things happen, but an agenda to cover it from your perspective. It's, it's a thing with like, so Ben Goad is my boss at the paper. We had a sit down conversation like first day. He's like, well, what do you think about the job? And I'm like, well, we just have to cover the best music. And to me, that's like, so great, great aside. Like I saw Morgan Wallen twice at the Bridgestone arena. This is after I spent most of last year, like writing like honest, hard hitting, brutal, real pieces about racism. But I'm like, he also has 4 billion streams on Spotify. So like, 
yeah, I'm going to sit there for two nights because I need to understand impartially because I care more about the job and I care more about the readership of the Tennessean than I care about what anybody thinks about me because I know at the end of the day, I have to have an unbiased, unfettered opinion about all of this. If my opinion stops at 99.97% of country music and there's 0.3 of it that sells, outsells 25 artists who I think are great, then I'm not doing my job. So like for me, that's the thing. It's like, I'll do that. I'll also write about Joy Clark, who's an amazing virtuoso, like black lesbian guitarist who like, you know, I met at Americana Fest last year and she's now playing with Alison Russell's band. I'll write about her in the same space. That's what you do. Cause it's like, to me, I look at, I have a week, like I have a, a whiteboard and it's like the week of country music. And if I'm not covering to me, what are the most compelling stories that week, even ones that push me and stretch me and make me have to like step outside of myself or reconsider things or, or notions that I would have outside of me having this job. That's what I do. You know, like it, like, like I said, I went to whiskey jam. I was like, you know, like, a lot of my friends who like, you know, look at me from DC or wherever else. And they're like, so you like went to like whiskey jam for like four hours and like sat there and like watched these guys like play country music. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, why? And I'm like, well, it's the culture of the city. I'm like, if you actually go to lower Broadway, the music that Hardy and Ernest and Ben Burgess are making kind of like defines the top 1% of what, Nashville's doing on some level and I wouldn't be doing my job like yeah is it is it a fascinating thing to do of course but that's the job so of course I'm gonna do the job it's a it's a rule I have with new artists right because nobody's new in country everybody takes like you know a decade to become new it's, it's a beautiful thing but to me it's like if you're new and you're making the best music in my unbiased opinion then I'm going to have something to say about the music that you are making, like unquestionably, and and that's the thing. It's like like for like right now, I have like two stories I'm working on about Pillbox Patty, because Nicolette is an A plus level writer, and her music is expanding the expectations of what women do in the genre in a way that hasn't been expanded in like fifty years. And I'm like, I have to cover that, and and she's new, you know. She's if I walked down the street. To, to the Publix, 1% of the people in Publix know who she is. But am I going to put her in the Tennessee? Absolutely. <laughs> like, she's making great music, and she's on the, the Ashley McBride album, and, you know, she's got her stuff, and, you know, she's, she's working and relevant. So that, that's the way I look at it. I saw you did a story on Ronnie Dunn. Absolutely. Because he, he has a new record out. Yeah. What's your experience personally like with Ronnie? Like, you go to a room and you meet him. How does Ronnie come off to you? Well, for me, Ronnie Dunn is like essential to country because people, if you don't know country music, you would really wonder why I would give a million craps about somebody from Oklahoma. Like to me, Oklahoma, Texas, that area, that red dirt area, that to me is like the bread and butter of the genre. And Ronnie understands that space better than almost anybody. He's like, unquestionably people want to ask why neon moon is one of the greatest songs of all time because it, it for a large part of a of enormous genre in music that song 
best defines what that look, sound, feel, and texture of a, of a, of a culture feels like. And when you talk to him, it's just like, it's funny. He's the only person I've ever met who, if you put him on too high of a pedestal, will immediately lower himself to your level by talking like well, we were talking and he's like, yeah, 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 this, but you know, have you heard Parker McCollum? He's on my record. And he's like, that guy, he looks better. He looks like he stepped out of the gym. And I, I like, you know, his look because he's got that Texas thing going on. And you're just like, wow. Because the, the funny thing I learned from him was like, and especially it's the thing that I love about country, is that you could be at the pinnacle of the space, but because you feel competition every day, because Nashville is that kind of town where like somebody could have 45 number one hits and somebody has 50 that walks in the room right after them. Like you're always competing. You're always working. So you're always comparing yourself to whatever you feel is the newest, hottest, youngest, most relevant thing, because you're almost like trying to figure out, well, where do I compare and am I better or am I worse or what could I do to like meet or exceed that level? I don't want you to say any names because I wouldn't say names if you asked me this question either. But do you ever, because you get to sit down and get intimate with, with these folks. Yeah. Usually go to a place where they're comfortable and when they're comfortable, they get comfortable faster. Yeah. You ever sit with someone and go, all right, this person's not even really in this. They're, they're, they're putting on something that's completely false just to make a buck or because they couldn't, <sighs> they couldn't hit it somewhere else. Okay. It's it's a funny thing with me when it comes to interviewing because you've you I've interviewed you so you've been in a, you've sat across from me. My job is to pull down your barrier before we even ask the first serious question. If I can't pull down the barrier, then I know that like I know something about this person is not at all legitimate or relevant in what they're trying to do or trying to accomplish. And I find ways to make sure that I meet my subject wherever they are in their creative process and what they're doing. Like that to me is more important than anything. Like understanding like, okay, you make music because you just want to meet cool girls. There are a lot of people who make country music because they want to meet cool girls, they want to meet a wife, they want to have three kids in a you know four-car garage, and that's it. And if I could find that in that person, and we dive in on that, and then I work back around to the music and all the other stuff I need, then that's an interview of value because I've, I've found something about this person where I know that I'm going to get pure, honest, unadulterated facts. And for them, when I come at them at that level... Half of the interview, sometimes I feel like they're like off put because they're like, wait, how does this guy know that about me? That is strange and weird. And I've never really told anybody that. But and that just comes from me from years of just like observing people like music is people. You know, it's like if you sing a song or you write a song, something of yourself is in that song. And me as a journalist, my job is to like figure that thing out and expose it to the whole world. And hopefully that impacts their development or their fan base or their economic bottom line or whatever. I don't know if it was strategy by you, because if it was, it was an awesome one, or if it just happened to be 
uh, the, the, the luck of the day, but you know, you were here and you interviewed me and I had done 55 interviews in a row. And so I came in and I had no barrier. My barrier had me eaten away. Any barrier that I even wanted housing. <laughs> I was exhausted, but it's the best place to get me yeah. because I just don't care anymore. I don't care for the most part anyway, for no, the most part. I, when it comes to you and me, we're the same person. We're opposite sides of the same coin. And it took me like a day of just like looking at the YouTube channel and going, oh, I think I know Bobby Bones pretty well. Like, and then I realized you're 42 and I'm 44. So, and then I realized you're a cultural influence of mine. And I'm like, there's a lot of similarities here. And I'm like, if I just talk to you point blank straight, there's something about like the way that you create magic when you interview people and the way that I try to create magic where I interview people where I'm like, something really special could occur. Well, you asked me something no one's ever asked me before. And again, as you've done 3,000 interviews yeah. and I've done many myself and been interviewed many times, it's rare when something new happens. Yeah. And so I'm sitting here and we're talking, having a good time. I like you. We're, right. And most interviews go, oh, look at this. You did bestsellers. Look at you. You did this show. You did that. And they're all like, which one? What's your favorite? Which? And you went, what do you, what do you not have? And I was like, oh, that's refreshing. Okay. Yeah. Let me sit up straighter. <laughs> And I remember, just get, I remember getting like fired up, not at you, at the fact that I'd never get to host the ACM or CMAs because I live with that. Joe Galante is a legendary music executive who became the youngest person ever to be head of a record label. And he's now in the Country Music Hall of Fame, which is crazy. And he talks about signing artists like Kenny Chesney and the Judds. This one was really cool for me. So you're in your early 30s when you come to Nashville? Um, actually 24. Wow, you're in your early 20s. Yeah. So you moved down... And you're working at RCA, but what is your job when you move here first? Because I know you're the, you know, one of the youngest, if not the youngest person to take over a major label. But so you move here in your 20s. What do you do? I had a, the glorious title of manager of administration, which really meant whatever Jerry wanted me to do, I did. But it really was trying to um, bring some semblance of order to the various departments, trying to get them involved with the corporation overall, the RCA corporation. I mean, I had been in the company a number of years. I had a lot of friends in the promotion department and sales department. So Jerry was, hey, go up there and meet with them, see what you can do for our records. And that was part of, part of what I did. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And that's where we are. You've just arrived in Nashville and you have a job that sounds like, I don't know what it is because the words are so vague, right? You're, you're yeah. doing it all. Yeah. It's just, yeah. um, let's move over a bit and go to another artist, uh, Kenny Chesney. Mm-hmm. So you met Kenny around what year? Uh, 90. And what did he have going for him when you met him? Well, the story is Dale Morris. We're coming back to the same person. Dale Morris, uh, I was getting ready to move back to Nashville from running the company in New York. And Dale called me over the weekend and said, I've got this kid, Kenny Chesney. I said, who's Kenny Chesney? Well, he's on Capricorn. I think you'd really like him. I said, well, send me the record, you know, and, and we'll have a conversation. So I got the record and I thought it was interesting and in what way as a songwriter i thought he had a unique perspective uh he was a country singer uh which at that point from looking at the roster we certainly could use a few more of those and he had been out working the road you know i mean he had been working through the whole process i had a respect for capricorn records and um dale said i think i can get him off so that's what we went down the road so Capricorn Records, uh, my assumption is he had, I've never heard of Capricorn. I'm assuming they're not around anymore. Maybe they no, are. Allman Brothers and those kind of guys. That's the Phil Walden was the the original guy that ran that company. Small, yeah. 
So Kenny's on a small independent label, and so you guys identify him as someone that you think you could make into a major star. Mm-hmm. So you have the record, you listen to it, he has a, an interesting perspective and a, an interesting way to present things. So you call him up, you go see him, what happens? Uh, actually, we met months later in the office. And, uh, you know, I mean, he, he was young. I mean, he came in, you know, it was, it was almost like George Strait light. I mean, he was really trying. I was was he cowboy hat then? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy to think about uh, hat at Kenny. Yeah. He's just not that anymore. It hasn't been for a, for a long time. And so he says to you, like, what's, what's Kenny Chesney's goal? Because he's on Capricorn, and you guys are, you think there's a nice relationship that can happen there. What does Kenny Chesney tell you he wants to do with his career at that point? He wants to be one of, one of those guys that everybody, you know, Phil, well, stadiums weren't in the, in the conversation at that point. So it's Phil Arenas, and I want to be one of the biggest stars out there. And I'm sure a lot of people say that. I mean, I think pretty much everybody probably says that. I want to be a big star. Sure. But why was Kenny different as far as, aside from the record that you heard and you thought his presentation was interesting and his songwriting, but why Kenny and why did you think he could be the massive star that he is now? He worked his ass off. And, I mean, he really, whatever he didn't have as a skill, as an entertainer or as a writer, he would go out and find those guys and spend the time to learn. Uh, I always thought it was interesting. He, when he was in town, he was always going to see shows. Something he, he continued on much later on. You know, uh, he went out and toured with Alabama when he didn't need to tour with Alabama. He'd go out and open for George Jones when he didn't need to open for George. He just wanted to learn. How do you entertain? What are you doing that makes it so different? And they were, you know, his heroes at the same time. When did Kenny go from being a guy that had some moderate to good radio success to being a superstar in your mind? Uh, early 2000s. And what, was it a song? Was it? How like, Forever Feels. That was the one. And you, you could probably, you're, where you are, I'm sure there are certain songs where you can just feel it. You're like, okay, we're looking at sales or we're looking at concert tickets. Like this is the element that is changing it. He actually was doing better business concert-wise than we were doing on records at that point. So he was making more money at live shows then you were selling, he was selling records. Yeah, but I mean, what you had were people, but think about back then in the late 90s, there, there's no internet. People were just showing up. It's word of mouth. And so people were going out to see him and what we needed to do was connect the dots. He had, you know, we'd have a hit, then we'd have a miss. We'd have a hit, we'd have a miss. How Forever Feels was the first time we started a string where we just kept going at it. Well, that string, uh, the consistency of the string, what you say you started hitting them in a row. What was the consistent? I mean, in terms of numbers? or No, in terms of you started to, the to put them together. But, but what, what was, this? was it a uh, certain texture of the songs, a tempo, an idea? Was he Beach Kenny yet? Was, like, what was it? No, he hadn't reached Beach Kenny yet. Uh, he was getting there. And um, he was developing the identity, you know, of coming out with the rock and roll T-shirts, the tight jeans, the whole routine, working out, physically getting there because it was a physically demanding job that he had and really spending the money on the production. He knew that he needed to make a bigger and bigger show. But, you know, when we made records, we pulled four singles off, sometimes five singles, and left singles on the album that we could have pulled out. So the quality of the music was there. And it was. It it was everything from the beach. But then you'd go through There Goes My Life, you know, I mean, you know, it just, it covered the gamut. And um, occasionally he would write them, but most of the time they were outside writers. 
you know, I often say that I love Slow Kenny. Like I connect with yeah. Slow Kenny. Anytime Kenny's doing a ballad or uh, slightly slower than mid, like those are my Kenny Chesney yeah. songs. Tequila. Yeah. Oh man, that's my, one of my favorite songs ever. Yeah. And so like Slow Kenny, that's my jam. Sometimes when he does the beach stuff and the fast stuff, I don't even like the beach. So I'm like, you know what? I'll pass on this one. But like, man, the guy's got an emotional catalog. Let's go back to New York. You moved to Nashville. You're working as some administration position. Um, and so do you start to climb here? Yeah. Is it, was that a goal of yours to climb here? Was it a goal of New York's for you to climb here? New York, at that point, I think I was off the radar in New York for that two-year period. Uh, we'd check in occasionally with each other. But um, I think the turning point for me was that Jerry began to see, Jerry Bradley began to see, when I go to New York, I'd bring something back that helped us. And I had this conversation with him one day because I kept, I was not in charge of promotion, but I was trying to figure everything out in terms of country radio. I really had not been involved with the format. And we kept getting these records that didn't quite compete with everybody else on the charts. But I mean, to the most of us, it sounded like we should be competing. So I dove into promotion and tried to start figuring out, meeting with people, going out with the promotion guys hitting radio stations. And, you know, I came into jury one day and I said, you know, we're not, we're not doing what we need to be doing. And he looked at me and he said, well, go damn, God damn it, go figure it out. I said, well, I'm not in charge of promotion. He said, you just go figure it out. I'll take care of it from there. So I came back and I said, well, here are the things that we need to do. He said, okay, I'll put you in charge. And I went, wait, 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 wait. I haven't run a staff. You know, I've been in promotion, but I haven't run a staff. And so that was the trial by fire. And that fire, as you're in the fire, do you realize that it's easier or harder or that you're naturally good at it or it's something that maybe you didn't have the instinct for, but you could work really hard and figure it out? Like, where did you fall when you got into this promotions world and now you're running it? I felt like I could do it, but I needed the experience. You know, I was surrounded by other labels where guys have been doing this stuff for 10 or 15 years. I've been doing it for 15 or 20 months. So it took me time to build those relationships and understand the system. But then I went after it. Did you feel like a little bit that you were at the right age at a time when things were changing and you had the right vision and mindset? Because, again, if you're working with guys that have been doing it 15 years, I mean, even, you know, in 83, 80, 45, it, it's a significant change since 75, 76 oh, yeah. as far as technology. Um, and, you know, I think I got lucky being this age because I was using the internet and you know doing podcasting stuff before everybody was doing it. But I happened to be very young at the right time, and so everyone's like, "Wow, look at this guy's doing all this revolutionary stuff." No, I was just twenty-two. Right. It really wasn't revolutionary. I just was young doing it. Did you find that a bit of that was because you were younger and you were actually using the technology of the day instead of having to learn it at an older age? Yeah, that was part of it, but I also think just like you, you you given an opportunity, you went after it. And you you were not afraid of trying things. And that gave you the entree. Same thing with me. I was not afraid of trying and failing if I need, but I was going to go after it. And, you know, anytime I needed to be on an airplane, out in LA, out in New York, out in Dallas, I just went. And you, you build those relationships and you begin to understand the stations and the personalities and the markets. And that really did help me when I went back to the, the artists and said, look, this is what's coming back about the music and why we're not succeeding. Or if we were succeeding, this is all the good news and there's not really a lot of bad news. And at that point, um, 
we had not developed a system. We were just getting to the point of, you know, the tracking systems like the BDS and MediaBase. That was just coming on. You were still dealing in archaic systems where people were, yeah, hey, it's, uh, yeah, it's in power. They would just say how many times they played it and you had to believe them. Absolutely. Wow. So you're credited with uh, really changing the formula of how promotion is done to sell records. What did you do in your mind that was so different? Well, one of the things was bringing the new artists out. I mean, we created the original promo tour. I mean, Loretta was the person that did it. When we just used the same model, it started with the Judds, and we went out with the Judds and took them into studios and brought radio people into studios. And that worked, but what we found out uh, later on when we did KT and Clint was that if we went to the actual stations, then people went in there, you met everybody in the station, they, you know, they'd cut jingles, they'd cut liners. So there was an advantage to going to the marketplace. Prior to that, people didn't really travel around to radio stations. Is it crazy to you that that's, that's still the thing? It's a personal business. You know, you, you, it's, it's nice to play it, but you want to know something about them. Sometimes that personal relationship is what gets you over the hump to adding a record. So uh, what I hear you saying is people. Always a people business. Whether it be a songwriter, a producer, or a manager, it's always people. Let's go to the Judds for a second. Growing up for me, massive because my mom loved them. <laughs> She would sing them all the time. Like one of the memories I have of my mother is her singing uh, Why Not Me or just, it was all Judd's all the time. Uh, and, you know, you have a mom and a daughter and I don't know that I have seen that before, a straight mom and a daughter that made it to a level like the Judd's or even a mid-level. So uh, you're, you're signing them. You're going to invest money in them. Like what did you see about those two that made you think that was something to put a bunch of money into and well, believe in? We used to, when we would go out to L.A., um, we'd stay at this little hotel called Le Park. And the guy that was in charge of Curb Productions, Dick Whitehouse, who passed away about a year and a half ago, <clears throat> he and I had been trying to do business for a while, just had never hit on anything. So we had breakfast, and we were in the, the suite talking, and, and he was getting ready to leave. And he's, I said to him, you got anything for me? He said, well, I've got this mother-daughter, and I've got a work tape, but it's not ready. I'll, wait wait till we get back. I said, what do you think, though, when you hear mother-daughter? Before anything else. Oh, it's magic. If you hear, I have a mother-daughter, are you like, that's so original that if they're good, I want it. Absolutely. Because I don't, I've never heard mother it, You know, before them, and I don't know and have the experience you have of being around, I just haven't heard a mother-daughter do it on a level of contemporary. And, and they were, even on the, the demos, they were great. So I said, look, I'm going to be back in Nashville on Monday why don't we get together anytime next week? You tell me when. So I think it was Wednesday or Thursday of that week. When Ona and Naomi came in, three songs, they walk out. I go, I called Dick and said, we've got to, we got to make a deal. And we did that day. What are they, and maybe you don't remember, but what are they coming in and saying? Do they have a guitar? Are they doing acapella stuff? No, they had a guitar. And, uh, you know, I was playing and singing and they were doing the harmony and Naomi is entertaining, telling you the stories. And I honestly don't remember at this point. So why not? Have <clears throat> must have, how old was she? She's a teenager, obviously. 16? Yeah, 16, 17. I thought that 16, is, 15. That is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And to have a, you know, you hear about stage parents a lot. That's a literal stage parent. That's a parent on stage with you and you're doing it together. What was that dynamic like for them early? Because they're equal stars. Yeah. But they're not equal in the house. Yeah. That, so I, I would assume that's, 
managing that dynamic would have been tough. It took a moment. Uh, I think that, you know, while I was beginning to see that she was the center of attention, but she did need her mom uh, for the harmony part and also for the entertainment part. <clears throat> and why just was really good talking to people. You know, why, I mean, uh, Naomi was. Why uh, was still, she was a kid. Yeah. But she was, she was gaining the experience rapidly. So you're going station to station. You're doing, you're figuring it out. Your, your data is happening because you found a new technique, right? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're starting to slowly see it. Uh, when do other companies start to see what you're doing and how it's working? And they start to mimic what you're doing. Several years later. But you just, you know, then we went from, you know, those promo visits to the bus tour. We would go around the country on a bus. And at first we did it just as a label going into radio stations, you know, and hitting them and taking them on the bus, showing the videos, playing on the music, talking for a while, you know, three cities a day, just keep going around the country for four or five months. And then we got the idea to start doing bus tours where you would bring the artists to the radio station on the bus and, again, take them on, spend the time. Just and that, We had that locked down for a couple of years before somebody said, oh, we'll do that too. <laughs> it's also a costly. Yeah. I mean, it costs a lot of money to move an artist around for months in a bus. And it's time-consuming for your staff, coordinating everything, you know, getting everything together, making sure that you've got everything you need. And at the same time, promo guys have it to keep, you know, working on those records. So, You're promotoring, <clears throat> you're head of promotions. When does that turn into, and, or maybe there's a couple steps in between, but when do you actually take the helm? Uh, Jerry stepped down in 82, so I took it right after that. And how did that feel to you? Like it's t- my time or like, holy crap? No, I, th- well, I know at that time the uh, company was kind of like, mm, are you ready for this? And I went, yeah. Was it because your age? Yeah. More than anything else. Cause it sounds like you've done things that nobody else has done. You've yeah. seen things in ways that haven't been seen. And had you maybe been 45, they wouldn't have asked a question right. possibly. So you're 32 mm-hmm. and they say you're ready for this. And what do you say? Yeah. What yeah. did you feel though inside your heart? Yeah. I felt like I could do it. You know, I mean, Again, just as I said before about running a staff, running a label is a different thing than being like the GM. You know, the buck stops there. What new responsibility did you have running a label that maybe you didn't know you were going to have when running a label? When you start building a roster, that's a completely different experience than just working records. Because? You're painting a picture. What you really do see should represent this label and where are the holes in the marketplace? What has the competition got? What do you have? Can you do better than they are in the various areas? You could have three women on the, on the roster, but maybe they weren't better than Trisha Yearwood. You know, you got to find where, and so we had the Judds, you know, you could crack through and, and, you know, moved on to Lori Morgan and, you know, it was just working through that process of trying to find, when you build a label, you build a catalog and you have to have those artists that are going to have a long tail, be able to sell for a long period of time. If you just have a series of one hit wonders, you're just constantly spinning. You're on a durable wheel, but building, yeah, you know, you have to be consistent about the music, consistent about the moves with the manager in terms of touring. What are you doing on the TV personnel? How do you get them on shows moving through the entire process? Hang tight. The Bobby cast. will be right back. 
This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break in period. Like, it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So, stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the BobbyCast. Jesse Frazier is a Grammy-nominated songwriter and producer. He talks about the number one hits he wrote for Thomas Rhett and what that songwriting process was like. Here's some uh, some of the Thomas Rhett stuff. Uh, so this is, let's see, you produced Die Happy Man, by the way, which is not on the new record, but you produced this song here. 
When you produce a song, are you getting any points on that forever? Yeah. Okay, you are. Yeah. So it's not just a producer fee up front and then you're done. We get an advance and we get points on the record. Yes. Oh, come on. You print money. <laughs> just wait till you hear this other stuff. And like, I'm happy for you. I love to see people make it. I love to see people be successful, especially if they're working hard. Uh, so here's some songs that, that you wrote for TR. Uh, Life Changes, which is the current single here. Such a good song. Thank you. He texted me about two months ago, and I don't know how much I factored into any decision. But he goes, hey, man, do you think Life Changes is too personal? And I said, for what? He goes, for a radio song. And I said, I don't think there's a such thing as too personal, ever. Right. And then he sort of, if you can let people into your life, but in a world when things don't matter to anybody anymore because there's so many things. Yeah. Like, you're basically putting out a biography in three minutes. Right. And people get to know you with a super catchy hook. Right. This song encapsulates Tom Shirt perfectly. You guys did a great job of this song. Thank you. But he knows you'd be honest, too. Oh, for sure. I would have said, no, I don't think so. And he does, you know, is for someone being as confident as he is in in his place and taking risks and and pushing boundaries, he does think about that. What is the next fan going to think? Is this a fan song or is this a universal song and and those kind of concepts? So I'm sure he knows you're going to shoot him straight on that. When you guys write that, though, is that a conversation in the room, too? Like, ooh, is this too personal of a song? And then is it a conversation before you put it on the record? Yeah, I mean, to to be honest with you, I don't think any of us expected it to be a single. It was one of the last songs we wrote. We wrote at the farm. His dad was there. It was me and Ashley and Rhett and Thomas, and we were in the little guest house there. And it, he was going through a lot. I mean, literally, I think there was nerves. The life was about to get turned upside down. So, um, it was a little bit of a unknown, and I think we were just sort of having fun. And it was just a, we figured we already had the whole record written you know take a stab at it so it's, it's such a smart move if that play works to put out something that people will like to consume while they learn about you at the same time right just for the thomas rep brand sure because i and i learned this i put out a book i didn't think anybody was gonna read that thing honest right. to god i wrote a book i thought no he's gonna read this right it was a bestseller for four weeks and i didn't know what i was doing when i was but i learned wow if i can make something good that also people relate to and right. learn about me it helps my message sure and so I think you guys captured that with the song. Like I think the song is really, thank you, buddy. really good, and really cool for an artist to do to put. Like, what if Luke puts out a song and goes like, "It's where I was born." I mean, it's just so it's such a perfect thing for a brand when you're trying to brand yourself right now, right? Because it's so hard to be known. We actually changed the lyric in the second verse uh, just to go to radio with, just because he had already had the other baby. So it was, you know, we what were, was the original verse? Uh, the original was. Um, one on the way, and now we've changed it to the you know another sweet baby James. Ah, oh, so, look at that! Yeah, well, how about this one? This tweak. is from the the record, uh, Unforgettable. So before the record came out, Tom Shrek came in the studio, and he played like five or six songs in a row from the record. And he, okay, he came in the studio, and he was playing this. And I said, hey, is that really about Lauren? He's like, no, nah, it's not. And he doesn't say that a lot now because he right. said it early. And sure. I don't scream because who cares? I, I like for people to. But he's like, not really. We just kind of wrote a song. Right. What can you add to that? What he told me. No, that's true. This was a bus song. Um, Unforgettable Marry Me kind of happened in the same two week period on bus trips. It's amazing that we had this amazing run. There's actually a song called 80 that was on a Target exclusive that. Like got the number 80? Yeah. Um, so we had this. Amazing two-week run, which, by the way, side note, we 
most of Thomas's records come from bus trips. He writes on the road more. He feels like that's like his office. So he doesn't write as much in town as he used to just because when he's home, he's with family. But yeah, it's just kind of one of those things. I think the mango margarita thing came out and it just sort of felt like a fun up tempo. Because sometimes we struggle with up tempos and the Thomas brand when we're writing for him. It's because naturally he kind of gets drawn to those sing- singer songwriter ballads and um, it just was sort of a high energy thing with Ashley banging out on piano while we were on the bus. We set up little Pro Tools rigs like this, like you have here, and basically capture it right there before he goes to meet and greet. Tell me about this bus thing. So you go out Wednesday nights, meet at the Kroger on And you're being wherever. serious. That's where yeah. the bus ride like the, the the bus is parked in some big parking lot. Kroger or Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. So you get a, does does he have a bus for just you guys? A lot of times we'll get a rider bus. I prefer it. Because then they can kind of have their own space. A lot of times they've got tour managers with them or whatever. So it's great when we've got a rider bus out. Sometimes, like last weekend I was with him, we were on his bus. So we'll meet the buses, park there or Uber to the buses, hop on around Wednesday at midnight typically, and wake up somewhere Thursday morning. I'll set up the Pro Tools studio on the table there right in the lounge and uh, start writing around 1030. Right till four thirty, just and then pack up, put it back in the suitcases. We roll and do it the next morning. Come back Sunday afternoons. He'll go on stage after he writes. Yes. So you'll write. Yes. He'll pack up. He'll go do his thing, his meet and greet. Absolutely. His, then yeah. he'll go on stage. Yep. That that he's a on- grinder. So like he'll come right off stage, or he'll come back from meet and greet, want to hear where the mix is at, or do a background vocal after the show. You know, get right back into writing. So like we finished four or five things last week and got vocals on seven. I mean, really he, he, one great thing. And one reason like Ashley or myself love going out with him is we know we're out there to work. I mean, we're just out there to grind cause we're all away from our families. So it's not just a party. Go see the show. I want to get some songs written. So it's pretty efficient. Here's uh marry me wrote this one. This is a massive number one too. So the concept of this song it flips on you pretty quick because yeah. you're going, okay, well, first you read the title and you go, oh, it's right. a song about getting married. Please marry me. <laughs> but then it turns out, why well, not, she's not marrying him because he's screwed up. Right. Where, where did that concept come from? Basically, it was the opposite of what truly happened. He had broke up with Lauren and actually went and said, or they were friends for a long time, I think it was the story. And he actually went and said, look, I think you're making a mistake. You know, you're dating this other guy. So it sort of was what would happen if I didn't speak up and say something. I think the song works so well because we had set up this brand of I love my wife. I, he puts Lauren on a pedestal and, and, and that marriage is part of his brand and, and his message and songs. So to have that twist in a song coming from Thomas Rhett, I think was even more effective than it would have be, you know, coming from another artist. So I have a demo. Who's singing on the demo here? Here, is this you? Is this? Play this one for she wants to get Shane. Shane McEnany. Oh, is that who that is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can yeah. So you wrote this with? Shane and Ashley and Thomas. So same same setup, right in the middle of the bus, playing keyboard. Turn this up, Mike. Out in the country, not too many people. So Thomas doesn't sing his own demos. Yeah, a lot of times he does. It depends on where his voice is. If he knows he's done one and he's got to sing a show, his voice is tired. Last year, we wore his voice out a couple times doing demos. So, so you would be singing on the bus, and he's got to go sing, and he's like, exactly. oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> you actually spoke up about this song, too, just because you were like, I, I, it was this one, Unforgettable. You were like, man, I feel like that song 
It was just getting heard by the time the oh, charts no, moved. For sure. Yeah, yeah. That's a big irritating thing to me as a consumer because I try to walk that fine line of being someone that has millions of people listening to them and knowing that I do have a bit of influence, but at the same time, I want to still take in music like my people do. Sure. And it's a really hard line, for, and a fine line for me to walk. But I, so I try to watch these charts and go, this song is just now starting to be a thing before the record labels are moving off of it because right. they shot it to number one so quickly. Yeah. And so I think it was a maybe even a three-week number one, a two or three, whatever it was. I was like, this thing has two or three more weeks in it. Right. Like if this were real life, this is a six or seven-week number one. Right. But in the, the world, they're just throwing songs up, getting number one, jerk it down, which long-term hurts the artist. Yes. Because, okay, Blake has 30 number ones. Let's use Blake for an example. Sure. How many of those 30 number ones do people really resonate with? Nine? Right. Really? They, yeah. I mean, there are number twos from 10 years ago that are huge deals. Because sure. this has only started happening in the past eight to 10 years. Right. Where they're shooting these songs up. Great for trophies. Right. You know, number one trophies are fun. Everybody likes to get theirs. But really, long term, not good for the big artists that have right. multiples. And not good for the consumer. Sure. Because they're off up again. Do you think it's unique? You come from... Other formats yeah. as well. So is it unique in our format? Absolutely. The speed? Absolutely. The speed because one, this is such a superstar format. Once you become a superstar, you're given a pass. Mm -hmm. Your song doesn't even have to research. When everybody else researches, you know, it right, takes right, a right. long time. You get, oh, my song researching. Will radio play it? So if you're a superstar, sometimes your song will be number one before it even starts researching. Right. I've seen songs from... We'll call it the A-listers, like that top seven or eight artists, yeah. which now TR is in. Yeah. At the time, he wasn't. This is three years ago. I've seen songs that would fly up the chart, not register as research, be number one, and then fall off the chart, sure. and then go, oh, the research was terrible for it. Where if it would have really spent the time, that, but it would have not been a number one. Yeah. That being said, it's not realistic for anyone that's not a superstar. Right. If you're a B-level act, and B's a real positive, that's... You know, that's not the entertainer of the year category, okay. but it's like, let's go male or female vocalist right. of the year. So let's say you're in that B category and you have a song. So it'll take 50 weeks, 40 weeks right. to be number one. When it's a smash, and it shouldn't, it should have shot up faster than the superstar. Sure. Yeah. In, in pop, it's all really who's got the best song. Camila Cabello, six weeks, right? number one. Zed Marin, nine weeks, right. number one. And then it will stay there for four or five weeks. It's really dictated on... Research plus streams, non-playlisted streams, right. by the way. Playlists, you know, with the big, you put a song on a playlist, who knows how that's going to count it. Sure. So people don't look, it's looked at differently right. as well. For, but anyway. Don't yeah, I mean, it, it, the weird thing here, not to get too inside. Oh, this but, is what this you is know. about, get inside. Okay. No, the, I remember first coming and seeing behind the curtain of Oz and going, oh, there's push weeks and they, Absolutely. they have target yeah, me weeks too. and they know these numbers and the syndications spins and all this stuff. It does kind of remove a little bit of that mystery when you were a kid going, oh, the billboard charts. And, you know, obviously I make a, a, a living off of airplay predominantly, especially right. these days, you know, but it is wild just to see what goes into the business of the charts um, compared to what you thought it was before you peek behind the curtain. I mean, I host a countdown on 130 stations or so, Mike, mm -hmm. something like that. And I know, you know, I at this time I know what's coming because I, I see the formula of record labels. And, sure. 
But I used to listen to Casey Kasem as a kid or Rick Dees and go, wonder what's number one? Because <laughs> it really was a thing. Yeah. And now it's just like, what was number two last week? That's probably going to be number one yeah. this week. Yeah. So let me do it. I do, there are those heartbreaking moments where you're like, you know, Devin, you know, I was like, ah, oh, he missed that it. That Devin Dawson, he missed it by one spin. Not even a full spin in a major market. I think it was six points. Yeah. Which you get the uh, an amount of points. If you're listening to this, it, it's so inside. But uh, the bigger the market you are, the more valuable your spin is worth. So, for example, let's say you spin a song in Houston. It could be worth 10 points, a spin. One play in Houston is worth 10 points. Devin Dawson was at number two. He lost by six points. Less than a spin in a big city. One spin. He finished at number two. I, I've never seen anything like that before, by the way. That's an outlier. That's got to be pretty unique. In my five-plus years, I've never seen anything like that song got so close. Before I got here, Gloriana lost to um, Love and Theft, like in the, the, that year or so before I got here, and it was very close. But I've never that Devin Dawson, that was crazy to me. So it's a spin. It's that was one. It was less than one spin. My if I spin a song on my show, it's worth sixty or seventy points one spin. So it's a significant, and I don't screw with that if it's close because I'm staying out of any battles. Right. Just because I'm not having a label or a management team or an artist upset with me. Right. And what if? If you, you know how you do snippets sometimes in the morning when you're like going through, you guys are talking about something, how much of a song before it counts as a spin? So that's the, that's a great question because what happens is you don't really know where the tone is in a song. So I I have no idea. So it, it'll have to hit a certain amount of time and the tone has to play. Usually it's in the first half of the song, but a tone hits, senses it, says, Oh, this is counted as a spin. And sometimes I've spun songs without meaning to. And given a song way more value, but the problem is the next week they have to go above what they did the week before. The song dies, you lose your bowl and I put them in a bad spot. And so hmm. I really try to watch that now. But that's a really that's good question. There's a hidden tone in songs. Did you know that, Mike? Yeah, I didn't know that. And so <laughs> I've been here seventeen what? years and didn't know it. Here's Leslie Simon on how she became the general manager of Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood's record labels. You know, everything in life happens for a reason. I'm a huge believer in that. And I'm also a huge believer in one door closing is just making room in your life and space for another door opening. And right when I, so I left Sony and Arista in February of 2016. And I mean, I want to say it was like either right before that or right after Garth announced he was staffing the imprint. And um, I remember you saying, I'm looking for Garth. Yeah. I was like, Brooks? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, yeah. yeah. And so how does that happen? And you, you're still with Garth. Yes. Right. Like, and Trisha. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how, does, how does that conversation, does he call you? Does So Mandy McCormick um, was working, was the first person that went over to work directly with he and Trisha. And so she was really helping him staff it. She called me. And we had a couple conversations, and then she said, um, he's playing the show at the Ryman, and we want you to come up and see it. And it was his first time to play the Ryman, y'all, which I did not. Ever? Uh, yeah. Oh, ever. I thought ever. it was like his first time to play the Ryman in like 20 years. No, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know And Did he get too big? He Quick? I, I think he just, he all of a sudden, he had not played the Ryman, and then he went out and was playing these huge shows. And I don't actually remember the exact story of why he didn't play it until that moment. But it was... When I say it was one of the most special music experiences of my life, my husband came up here with me. We went to the show, and at one point in the show, I had tears 
coming down my face. And my husband looked at me and he's like, that's a visceral reaction to music. And if you are emotional in a happy way, not a sad way, I mean, it was just so, it was such a beautiful performance. I mean, here he's playing these covers at the beginning with the, with the curtains closed on the stage of the Ryman and he's playing George Jones and Johnny Cash and just this, you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, you're listening to the, this amazing music and from him and then he and Trisha come on stage together. It was just, it was really a powerful night. And um, the next day, I remember my husband looking at Mandy and is like, she's going to do this. And then he called me that night, the next night, and we just had a conversation about, you know, kind of where I was in my life and what I wanted to do and what he wanted to do with the label and, you know, where he was. And um, at that point, I was like, I'm in. It's weird when Garth calls on the phone. <laughs> it's weird because you're and just like, that's crazy. Garth's voice is coming out of that little phone right there. And he's just this kindest. Yeah, it's that's weird too. He's so yeah. kind and he's so gracious and he's so... He listens better than anybody I know. I mean, like he literally listens to the words coming out of your mouth and what you're saying. And some people are thinking about what they're going to say next when they're talking to somebody. He doesn't. I agree. It's again. I, I keep using the word weird because you just don't expect a massive star, the to biggest have, star to have, to in the world, to have time, yeah, or to care. And he, all that, he makes the time mm -hmm. and he cares. He really cares about human beings. And I mean, Trisha is the same. She's one of my very best friends. I just absolutely adore them. And, and I have to say, I mean, you know, I started in September of 2016 and, you know, here I was the GM of their labels and I'm, we're launching this new team and this new music and, and, Six months after I started, I was diagnosed with cancer. And both of them immediately went into whatever you need every single time that I called him. And I was like, okay, I want to really not focus on the cancer. I want to feel normal and focus on work. And so, you know, after I had the surgery and, and I'd kind of get over the hump of chemo, I would call him to talk about work. And he'd answer the phone and he'd stop me. I mean, I'd go, hey, how you doing? I want to talk to you about, and I'd just like dive in and he's like, whoa, how you doing? And I'm like, I'm good. How are you feeling? And he would always stop and want to talk about how I was. And I felt like with both he and Trisha, my health and where I was, not just physically, but I mean, you know, this kind of a disease is it's emotionally trying as well. And they were always so concerned about me and my family and how we were doing in the juggle. And I, and I remember saying to him, I need to work. I need to feel normal. And working makes me feel normal. And he was like, you know, you can work as much as you want to, but you also need to take care of yourself. You felt supported <sighs> personally and professionally, which makes you feel even more supported personally. Exactly. The Bobby Cast. We'll be right back. 
This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bobbycast. Nathan Chapman is a Grammy award-winning producer who worked with Taylor Swift before she even had a record deal. He talks about that and what his role was as a producer. So Liz, who I, I love and, and know Liz, she's like, produce these demos, but how produced were the demos? Were they, you know, you got instruments, drums, or yeah. was it uh, 
you know, just tailor a vocal? I, I like what was the what was the early Taylor demos like? They sound like the first record. Did they, did yeah. a lot of them turn into the record? Uh, Tied together with a smile is just the demo upgraded. It's one of the tracks on that first album. And uh, but we we went in and recut a lot of that stuff because I didn't have a budget. I was just playing everything myself. You know, demos are still kind of cheap. Uh, you try to make it as cheap as you can. But then when uh, I remember when um, Scott and Taylor called me on speakerphone and said, "Hey, you know, we want you to go in and, and track some songs." It was basically an audition. Scott was like, "This guy, the demo guy." You Borchetta. Wanted- you mean Scott yeah, Borchetta? Yeah. Scott Borchetta. Because Taylor she had been in the studio with a couple of different people and she just felt like that the demos we were making really captured what she wanted. And I was 28 and she was 14 or 15 and neither one of us had a clue what we were doing. We were just making music. I certainly didn't have any clue what was going on. I was just making songs. Why do you think she was drawn to what you two were doing versus what she had experienced so far? Well, I mean, I was playing all the instruments I there was a couple of times I would bring in bass and drums from uh, rhythm section guys, but I was playing all the guitars, and I think it just, I think it just sounded younger, maybe, than like the way. Even now, it's like, you know, there's the track guy. I'm making air quotes for people who are only listening. The track guys in Nashville, where they program the drums and they get a sample from Splice. Well, sometimes that stuff is just captures the magic, and it just sounds like what is going on or what's what's happening. It doesn't sound old and stodgy. I think. Some for some reason, when we would make those demos, and then she would go in the studio with a, a producer and with a band, and it would almost kind of like take the cool out of it. I guess that, and it, it's happened to me. I've been the guy who's took taking the cool out of songs, where you have a demo that's just awesome. It's really cool, and I'm sure you've heard those. I'm sure artists like, hey, I just wrote this song. What do you think of this? You know, before it's even been recorded, then you go and record it, and it's better technically, but it's just not as exciting. You know. And there was something to what me and Taylor were doing where it was like she was writing these songs that were super oddball for the time. You know, Tim McGraw was the title of one of the songs, you know. They were not, they didn't fit anywhere. And then I was doing these productions that really didn't have any business being in Nashville. I was more, I was trying to make like pop music with country instruments kind of thing. So we were just a good fit with that. And um, she just, she went to Scott Borchetta and she's like, I really think these demos just, sound more like me and and he to his credit he gave he gave me a budget he gave a demo guy a budget who'd never really done anything and gave me a shot so when taylor's making tim mcgraw which you just brought up which is a good example it didn't sound or feel or it wasn't like what was happening here at the time well i mean it kind it, it wasn't it wasn't you know i mean her her youth and her her songwriting her perspective her story which was you know i'm in high school and i'm feeling I'm feeling these feelings and I'm feeling rejected or I'm feeling like I'm in love and you know that combined with a 28 year old guy who doesn't really know what he's doing but it all kind of came together you know do you have to when you're producing and it doesn't have to be Taylor but it can be but somebody young who's a teenager I'm just assuming you have to handle them in a room differently than you would handle an artist that's been there many, many times. Just the psychological part of it's tough. So with Taylor, you don't know what you're doing. She doesn't know what she's doing. How do you communicate? Okay, I don't know if we like how that vocal went. Let's do it again. What was that communication like? Well, I think we didn't realize it at the time, but because neither one of us had any kind of reputation or any kind of like 
you know, success. It was just honest. You know, I remember one time I was like, you don't sound good today. Go home. We'll work again tomorrow. You know, and would I say that to a big famous person, you know, especially not when I was young. Um, And then she would be like, you know, dude, that track is horrible. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I mean, we're just saying what we felt and there was no, I wasn't worried about making a big famous person mad. And then sometimes I feel like new artists, when you're in the room, like me being a more of a veteran and then being a new artist, I feel like they want to, they want to tell themselves that I must know more than them because I'm older and been doing this longer. But there's a beauty in just like being super honest with people. And if you do it out of love and you do it because there's a common goal of making something great, then hopefully it doesn't offend. When you make the record, did you do the entire album? Yeah. So you make the first album. And this is the most cliche question that I can ask, but I just, did you feel like there was a shot at something right there? Something more than just a good record that may have a couple hits, which is what everybody wants. Yeah. Did you feel like, all right, we might have something groundbreaking? Well, I will, you have to put it in the context of where, where I was at the time where she was a young artist, you know, 15. And I think Billy Gilman was, and Leanne Rimes were the only two kind of like people who had been successful before her. And Scott Borchetta and Big Machine Records had two artists besides Taylor, Jack Ingram and Daniel Peck. And I remember collectively between those two artists, Big Machine had only sold maybe 50,000 albums as a label. So my hopes were high from a creative place and from knowing that Taylor was really, really good, like that she was very, very special as far as like songwriting talent, her communication skills and as an artist. But business-wise, I was like, this probably won't be that big a deal. Because For the same reason you mentioned my songwriter friend earlier, like you said, you just looked at the landscape, you saw what was being created and sold, yeah, and it probably just looking at the numbers mathematically yeah. wasn't going to be that big of a deal, yeah. Even if it was great, even if it was the greatest freaking yeah. thing ever, yeah. mathematically, it probably wasn't going to be as big of a deal as as you had hoped. Well, but, the the story of Big Machine Records could be its own documentary of like a David and Goliath thing where Scott. You know, he had investors pull out like he had, I mean, it was, we, they were painting the walls in the building. The paint was still wet. It smelled like wet paint in the big machine office when we were stuffing the envelopes to send out her first single. It was so new. And I'd been in Nashville, grew up here long enough to see companies start and fail, you know? So I wasn't like, if I, if I said I was some kind of savant and could see the future that this was all going to work, I'd, I'd be lying. But a lot of people in town didn't. No, it's, I will say this. It's not like I didn't believe. It's just, I didn't know. I was just like this, this could go either way. You know, Tim McGraw, Teardrops on My Guitar, our song, Picture to Burn. Uh, I mean, uh, should have said no. You know, inside of that, were there any of those songs? And it could have been, it could have been a deeper cut too, where you're like, wow, she is quite the communicator here. Like, uh, I've been working with people around here that can't do this communication at this level. Yeah. Well, I mean, our song, she wrote by herself when she was like 14. And if you think about the lyric of that chorus, it's really genius. That was kind of the first time I was like, oh, dang, like, Mm. who is this person? Because our song is a slamming screen door 
you know, sneaking out late, tapping on your window, talking on the phone, you know, is the way you laugh. If you think, if you break that down, like if you put that chorus in a, in a college literature course, you'd be like, okay, our song, the chorus, everything she's describing is sounds, you know, it's like slamming screen door, uh, tapping on a window. It's like, that's pretty genius, you know, for basically a, you know, a kid, a minor for, you know, writing that kind of stuff by herself. It was, I was like, this is really next level writing. And I was always a fan of, of, of her songwriting ability and, and, and understood how good it was. But like I said, it was like, I don't know if it's going to work, but it's really good. <laughs> so it works. That first record works, obviously. Do you worry that as the guy who didn't know what he was doing, this is what you said, that now, okay, well, she has some success. They're probably going to get somebody now really good. Like, do you worry about that? Or do you go for, oh, they have to go with me. We just did this together. Oh, I mean, I think that from the first record to the second record, there, we, there wasn't any time to catch your breath. I mean, we- Oh, just hit, just hit the ground running. So yeah, no- Fearless came. We started recording Fearless right away because she was writing those songs. And then Speak Now was- definitely a lot of pressure because we'd won album of the year at the Grammys for Fearless. And we were like, okay, everyone in the world's going to listen to this album. That was the difference between Fearless and Speak Now. When we made Fearless, it was like, people might hear this, you know, but Speak Now was like, everyone's going to listen to this. Do you think <laughs> if you could go back in time and there was a, more of a gap between record one and record two, do you think with success that have been like, let's, let's go to somebody who's done this with some bigger artists. Do you think that you were obviously not lucky because of your skill set, but lucky in the timing that since you were just going, you got to keep going. Yeah. And if there would have been a longer break, they would have looked for a more established producer. Yeah. And eventually they did. Um, you know, Max Martin came in. Uh, but that's when the, the pop stuff album. though, right? Yeah. And that's, and that's how I sleep at night. I'm like, oh, she, she didn't fire me. She just changed genres. <laughs> oh, I always, I always felt that way. I felt like, you know, that was a switch because she switched. But I just think it's so amazing that she had to continue making, she didn't have to, but you guys kept making music between yeah. one and two. And if there would have been a break, they'd have been like, hey, the record was such a success. Maybe we upgrade in producers. Yeah, well, they, yeah. And it, the insecurity that we all have as music makers would would say that, yes, I was thinking that. I was also just really focused on enjoying what we were doing and trying to make the best music we could. And And I figured like, it can't go forever, you know? But- I was grateful that she came back. And yeah, if there had been a long time or if the first record hadn't done very well, like the first record sold a lot too. You yeah. Know? If, if, if something had happened where it was like a real, you know, face plant, like on a release or something, I think that that would have, that would have happened earlier. But we were, the, we were together from the first album, second, third, half of Red. And then I had one track on 1989. So it was like really good time. Before you take a project, or let's say you just say, I will produce this artist. Okay. What is the pre of what you have to do before they come in and actually start recording? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I think that it's like measure twice, cut once, you know, in construction. It's like the more thought you can put into the project before you get the studio, the better. Sometimes that's the artist is obsessively overthinking what their record's going to be. And I'm there to just kind of help realize it. Do you mean in concept or in sound or, because again, your job is all encompassing. Like you're, you're producing the record. You're the guy. 
yeah. you know, vocal, sound, everything has got to go through your lens with the help of, you know, the artist, but right. it's your name on it. Yeah. But when you mean they're overthinking it, in what way do a lot of artists overthink their, their music? Well, it's different for everybody. I think that um, for someone, since we were talking about Keith, for someone like Keith, like he has a real, really clear idea of what his next step is artistically, what his next, what the next paragraph is in the conversation with his fans. Um, all of our big artists in country music, they are having, we don't realize it because we're all fans. I'm a country music fan. I'm a pop music fan. I love all music. But one thing that country music artists are doing, whether the fans realize it or not, is they're having a conversation with you. They're telling you stories that they want to get a reaction from you, whether it's, you know, something that we're kind of used to about being on a back road or whether it's like, you know, something like where Kane Brown's move where he kind of did that song about love and everybody coming together. And it's like whatever, you know, Miranda might be killing a guy. You know, it's like we're, it's basically we're being told stories by storytellers and any great story doesn't just say the same thing over and over. There's like an arc to it. So depending on where someone is in their career, depending on where they are in their relationship with their fans is where they're going to be in that story. And, you know, if, when you think back to great artists like Cash and Haggard and, you know, uh, McIntyre, McBride, I mean, Hill, whatever it is, it's like. You, when you look back on an artist's career after they've been doing it for a couple decades, you feel like you really have been on a journey with them. If you're a diehard and you're buying every record, listen to every song. And that's what I feel like, um, what I mean by over-obsessed. And the music part of that is kind of subordinate to the story in country music. In pop music, it's like, you know, whatever the, the, the storytelling is almost in the musical side. It's like, remember when Bieber put the song out the uh, where are you now had that weird whistle sound in it and everyone's like whoa what is that you know that was kind of his way of talking to his fans is like hey this is where we're going now musically we were doing this now we're doing that and then we're going to do was that song lonely he had that was like lonely you know? the ballad yeah. yeah so it's like i feel like in pop it's like it's it's a similar journey with an artist but it's a lot more about the musicality of things and where we're going sound wise and what are we partying or are we crying or with country music, it's like, where are we in our lives right now? Like, where are we going through? What are we hurting about? What are we happy about? What are we feeling? Where, where, when we blow off steam, how do we want to do that? Are we at a bonfire? Or are we at a club? You know, there's all those things. And I feel like I feel like the best records that I've made have been with artists who have a really clear idea of what's next, what they're trying to say, and uh, who they're trying to be and wh where they are with their fans. So, um, so like with Keith, it's like he had a really clear vision of what that Fuse album was supposed to be. And in his perfect world, no other album does that. That album did that. And the next album does this. And um, someone like when I was meeting with Tom Betchy with that new band, uh, Homegrown, that I'm going to work with. I love those guys. And Tom's a great manager. Uh, Autumn House is working with that too, with that project too. Um, they're at the beginning of the story. How do you start the story? You know, I think that's one thing about country music that I don't want to get lost the more we um, kind of do business like LA and like pop. It's like, I don't want to lose the story. That's my biggest thing. And I feel like the great artists, the people we really look up to in country music, they've, they, they have that. So extremely macro is what I'm hearing because you're like story, wide art. We're going we're gonna to then figure out everything that goes inside of the bucket yeah. that you've, you've now told me we need to fill. And so if it's a new artist, are you... 
there's a lot of songs. Are you then picking and cutting songs based on not how good they are, but if it's a tie, okay, which one better defines where you are right now in making this project? Like all the decisions, even yeah. sounds inside, sonically, yeah. all those decisions are kind of based on, I'm assuming some communication you've had before, like where are you? And now we're going to make sure everything we put in this bucket is exactly on brand with that. Well, and what's fun about a new artist is that there may not be a bucket. And the bucket kind of forms around the water, so to speak. You know, it's like, sometimes it's like, okay, what's going to work? Like, they have to get on the map, you know? So what, what of all the songs you've written in the last year, which ones do we feel like might move the needle? It used to be a radio conversation, and, and now it's both a radio and streaming conversation and XM and of like, what's going to work? What, what's going to connect? Is it going to be a streaming hit and, or is it going to be a radio hit or is it going to be something that XM will play or is it just something that will work great live? It's like, you just got to move that needle first and almost like figure it out after that. And a lot of times the, a brand new artist, they don't have fans, so they don't have a conversation yet. So they don't know what they're supposed to say. They don't know who the people are who are really going to be drawn to them, what age group they're going to be and all that. We'll stick with Keith for a second since um, we were talking about him. Knowing him a little bit, not only personally, but, you know, I've been to his studio in his house and I've seen him and he's all over the place just as what I see. If it's just him and I, and he's moving, he's turning things up and he's like, well, let's watch this, point at this, yeah. go here. Oh my. And you're like, why is he like that to work with too, where he's got so much energy and he's doing nine things at once and he's got visions that he's explaining, but it's almost, you can't understand his vision because it's a vision. Yeah. Is that what working with Keith is like? Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, he's, he's definitely, before I worked with him, I was like bucket list artist for sure. Um, and the first song we ever did was uh, the song with Miranda, We Were Us. That was the song. It was uh, John Knight, Jimmy Robbins, and Nicole Gallions, all their first number one. And that was the first song I did with Keith. And um, it was a funny story. We were making that song and he didn't have Miranda's vocal on it, obviously, because we were just building the track. And um, he said, uh, I really wish we had a female vocal on here, uh, just a placeholder, just to kind of get us through the production while we're building the track. And I was like, well, my wife's upstairs and she's a great singer. And he's like, oh, well, go get her. And so I went upstairs and my wife was like seven months pregnant. <laughs> she had adult braces. And she was finishing a Chick-fil-A sandwich <laughs> and she had crumbs on her belly, you know, from her belly sticking out. And I was like, hey, babe, Keith's downstairs. He wants you to come sing on this track. And she was like, what? <laughs> Do you hate me? <laughs> I said, come on, just come down here. It'll be fun. She had a great time. He, she and Keith hit it off. They like had a great like rapport and everything. And, and she, you know, she like, you know, got a little bit dolled up before she came downstairs because she wanted to make, put a, do a good impression. And so like three days later, out of nowhere, she goes, didn't Keith have the best scent smelling cologne? Oh, always. Yeah, everybody says that about Keith, yeah. And I'm like, are you thinking about him? <laughs> three days later, out of nowhere, you bring this up? And she was like, funny. yeah, he, he did smell really good. And I was like, ah. Oh. Let's take a quick pause for a message from our sponsor. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop the new styles. 
You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back on the Bobbycast. Here's Carrie Edwards, and she talks about being a manager for Luke Bryan and Cole Swindell. I wasn't here when Luke started. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still in Texas. But was Luke... Was there some heat on him when he was a new artist? And people were like, oh, this new guy? Or was he like one of the new artists that it took a bit? And he, he, he kind of put some songs out and people were like, I don't know. Like, what was it like, like with Luke in the beginning? Well, the first song we released was All My Friends Say. And it ended up being a top five. So you're starting strong. He started All start- my friends say. So yeah, you're yeah. like, bro, this is easy. We got to figure it out. Yeah. How do you feel... When this song actually has some success, you're mm-hmm. a brand new manager. Mm-hmm. Are you like, I made the right call? Like, I feel good about it. Which part? About being all, a manager? Yes, all of it. You're like, <laughs> holy crap, we got a top five song, got a new artist. Like, we're ready to go. 
Yes, you do feel very proud and very excited, for sure. But, you know, one song doesn't mean you have a career. But you only put out one, and you're one for one. Yes. Okay, so. So we're excited. You got yes. a little a new artist. Yes. This kid from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Kind of has a uh, kind of little, little, little twang about him, a distinct voice. Very, little yes. fla- little Little flavor. So, okay, what's next? Next was a heartbreak for us. Um, we put out a song called We Rode in Trucks. And it died. Now, how quickly did it die? I think it, I don't, I'm terrible on memories and all that, but I, I'm going to say it got in the 30s. And our head of promo, radio promotion at the time, um, just felt like he wasn't going to um, get it up the chart. And the reason it was heartbreaking was when Luke turned in his record. I think, I don't heard him say so i'm not misspeaking but that he believed and i definitely believed like it was his song i mean at that point like to me that was the song that was going to this one launch it yes we thought to back it didn't it did not go so well did not and i was devastated really he was beyond devastated because that was his his personal like baby song mm-hmm. like that was i his- just feel like it was the it is still like if you go and listen to it. I mean, it's funny you playing those those because it's I haven't listened to those in a long time as far as like his voice and it just sounds so different now. But um, but when you listen to the lyric of that song, it was it was very well done and I was just super proud of that lyric and what the message was at that time. And it, you know, it was called "We Rode in Trucks," but it wasn't about trucks. Right. It was about life. So that one doesn't do well. So then it's yeah. like, oh great, now we got to now now the pressure's on because mm-hmm. you just one just kind of petered out. So what happens? Well, you know, the, I'll say a lesson I learned in that, or that I ended up learning when I looked back on it. Um, I think at that moment when that song didn't work, I remember sitting in the office I was renting at Starstruck Entertainment and telling myself, you know what, like I can't just rely on. A liaison telling me why that didn't work. Like, I want to be able to ask people in radio why that didn't work, but I didn't know them because I was the brand new manager in town that no one knew. So it really became like a kind of a personal mission of mine to figure out how to meet those people and have a relationship with them. So the only way I knew to do that was to start going to a bunch like, of shows get on and the get road, on the right? road and do it. Man. It's funny you say get on the road because even before, and I would say you and I have a friendship now, mm-hmm. but even before we, we, we just worked professionally mm-hmm. around each other, you were right. always with Luke, mm-hmm. always with Luke. And I was like, man, she's always with Luke. Mm-hmm. Well, it, at the time though, only, he was my only client for a very long time. So there was that. <laughs> not when I knew you though, because Cole, Cole came around about when I came around. Yeah, but actually I worked with Kelly Bannon before that. Um, so she was my second signing. Now, Cole was around, but he was around in a different role. Oh, is that right? He was Luke's merch guy. So, yeah. Which, so is, which is funny to talk about. Right. So, uh, with Luke, um, how many songs did he have that didn't work? That, that was it. That was the one? Yeah. <laughs> so, what was next? Um, Countryman. Okay. Yeah. What was the turning point for Luke where you go, all right, now we went from being a, like a, an artist that's on the radio and it's good to like... Probably Do I, that he wrote with uh, Charles and Dave from Lady A. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the song that you that you really felt like was making a, a turn. Um, with this song, was there ever a question of who would get it? Because Charles and Dave, it, you know, when artists write together, because I just had this conversation with um, TR, mm-hmm. because 
TR, Tom Shred, and um, Matthew, Matt from Old Dominion mm -hmm. wrote Some People Do Together. Right. And they had the, the who gets it? Because they both really liked it. Now, I wonder when you talk about do I, was that an issue with them? I think, if I remember right, I want to say that Lady A already had their album out, and maybe it was the timing. And, you know, they, those guys were fired up about being writers and stuff, too. So I think they were just excited, you know, to have a cut, too. Yeah. You know, like I remember the number one party and Charles, you know, speaking on that, just how excited, you know. I, I, honestly, I, for some reason, I was watching it not too long ago. Somebody had a clip of it, like, the last two or three months. But I rem he's saying in that clip, you know, oddly enough, this was almost more exciting for us than our first number one, which I don't know, but... Uh, they had had, I mean, Need You Now, Please. Right. I mean, the biggest song in the universe at that time. So they were doing fine. <laughs> so that's kind of the turning point where, like, do the festival offers, are, are you now the big bold letters? Yeah. Does this do that? Where you, but, you know, Luke's been, in my opinion, I think he's always had a strong touring career. That was actually probably a very big benefit to him. He always was fortunate in that field of, clubs and selling them out and you know not maybe not the first time but like we really we really built that for a while club circuit and coming back and coming back and coming back you know but then he did a lot of support i mean i think our first support slot i'm trying i think it was i can't remember if if trace adkins took us out first or but I, the one i remember the most being the longest like real tour was Luke on the front, Bucky Covington in the middle, and Dirk's uh, headlining. Bucky Covington was playing the middle spot he was, uh -huh. of, over Luke. Uh -huh. Crazy. The only time I hear Bucky Covington now is on the airport when he's like, this is Bucky Covington. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming to BNA. I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't even seen him around. Me either. Uh, and he was an idol guy. Yeah. Right? I think. I think he was too. Yeah. From like back in the back in the day. So um, first time Luke wins Entertainer of the Year. I mean... You'll make me cry now thinking about it, but it was, it was beyond insane. Um, it's that, I mean, definitely that you feel like the validation from your peers and coworkers and, you know, but I think it was just even more so just knowing all the hard work that he had put in and just, you know, how, I mean, you don't top that moment, you know, ever. And he and his family have had a lot of, unfortunate tragedies and like watching them in that moment and being able to enjoy that moment was you know pretty emotional and and um I mean I was shocked though I mean I really the truth be told that year when they were doing nominations and a lot of times you discuss with your label kind of what your things are that your most your important emphasis for the voting period I I told them not to include him in Entertainer. Like, I literally remember saying that. I'm like, no, we don't need to go there. Because, I mean, truthfully, I hated, like, I never, as an industry person, I always, it always bugged me when I thought people were on there and they weren't quite ready to be on there. And I kind of felt like that's where he was. Like, I didn't, I mean, he was blowing up, and I knew that, I felt that, but I still didn't feel like he should be there and then after the first round when he made the second round but then as a manager you're like well they put him in there i'm not going to sit here and not you know try to support it yeah, so don't, then, you're not gonna go take yeah, him out yes, i demand no. and he, so at that point we, we went to work pretty hard <laughs> crazy just 
because you were there from the beginning. Like there's just all of that early, early mm-hmm. sweat mm-hmm. is so much more rewarding. It was, it was mind blowing. Like our, I mean, you know, he's been fortunate enough. He's won two ACM entertainer and two CMA, but I mean, on all, all four times, you're just overwhelmed. Cause that's, again, that's like the, that's the Trump. That's like the biggest honor that you can get, you know, in our industry. What's the most frustrating thing about fans with Luke? Or not even fans, critics. Let's go critics. Because fans are all, fans love, I have this thing to where I talk to people. I'm like, you can't, people just want a voice. Mm-hmm. People are going to say things just to be heard, even if they don't mean it. But sometimes, like, where I would get irritated for Luke is when they would, like, hate on him for, like, the yeah. dancing. Yeah. I mean, between the dancing and, you know, my favorite term, bro country. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I don't even think of Luke as a as a bro country artist. Yeah, but that's they started it with him, and it's so they did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I pretty see. much. I mean, and then you know became the thing. And I mean, I don't know that I heard him do an interview ever for like three or four years that that didn't come up. It was exhausting. That's you know. funny that that you and you're probably right. I felt like it was an FGL thing more than it was a Luke thing. No, it was Luke first. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. And how did he feel about that? Did he just hate it? Yeah, yeah, he hated it. I mean, it's his artistry, it's his, you know, livelihood, it's his face, it's everything, you know? So yeah, I mean, that's not what, when you're out there working that hard and putting that emotion and energy into writing and singing and performing, and then that's the headline. Eh. As his confidant, like Mm -hmm. his his closest person professionally, and I've had to have these conversations with people that work close to me. Mm-hmm. Like, what? how do you, because people have to walk me through things because I get a bit emotional or like I create something and it's not, how do you talk to him like, hey man, keep your head down. Like, keep keep going, don't let this get to you. I mean, he he's good about that anyway, truthfully. He has a, a good sense of business and he's, and I think, you know, I don't know, I'm guessing, but I think a lot of it may be, you know, the personal stuff that they've been through tragedy-wise as a family. And, you know, it's a lot, that's a lot heavier than any of this would ever be, you know. So I think just from those experiences, you know, he's good about trying not to get heady about that stuff, but there's no way it doesn't, you know, bother you at some point. So yeah, he, you know, he would have moments that he would get really frustrated about or that he was over it, you know, over that being, you know, you go to a show and, wherever, Minnesota, and that person would also like, you know, or, you know, they would somehow reference it. But, you know, the review would be great. The show would be great. But he would still be in there somewhere referred to as the bird country artist, of, you know. So he, I don't know, he, there was some time, I mean, you know, I don't know, I don't know what year it was, but it was like the topic, you know, and he would do interviews. And, the, you know, a couple of times I would have to maybe stop an yeah. interview or two. <laughs> And that's your job. Yeah. Like you have to be the bad person sometimes. Yeah. Like, all right, we're done. My thing is, and did you ever have to do with me? Did we ever have, did you ever have to stop? With that? With, no, no. Oh, in, I, in that was never a thing to me, yeah. but like no. early on. No, I don't think so. I don't remember. I don't think so. I, I did get interviews because mm-hmm. people were just, they were a bit, I was the new guy and they were a mm-hmm. bit like, what, what is this guy up to? Mm-hmm. But as a manager, well, you know our town. <laughs> now you know our town. Now I know what. Well, I just worked both sides of it. So <laughs> right. now, you know, I'm doing the interviews, but I'm also being interviewed all the time. And so I also have my manager. Right. There are times where they have to step in and be the bad guy mm-hmm. or take somebody out of the room mm-hmm. 
and have a, an uncomfortable conversation when I that they don't want me to be around. Mm-hmm. And that's your job. You have to be the bouncer sometimes. You do. And like, I feel like it's one thing to do that early on. It's harder to do it early on because you still feel like you're getting your foot in the door with everybody and you don't want to make anybody mad or come off the wrong way. But then there's a certain point where you're just like, all right, this is not the best situation for this client and they need to know. So let's go back and you mentioned Luke's merch guy, mm-hmm. Cole. Mm-hmm. And so Cole Swindell. Swindell um, well, Cole has been in our life a long time. Um, he went to Georgia Southern, and that's where Luke and Michael, his guitar player, had gone to school. So they had they were going at you know back and doing like fraternity parties and stuff. And Cole was in school there. He was you know he's a few years behind them, and he would come to these fraternity parties and he was just intrigued he was in awe of like that they got up and sang and then i mean luke and i don't think i was at the fraternity party phase of that but luke tells the story of you know him rolling in to do a show and he had a new song that he had written and just cole's reaction like you actually wrote it like you wrote it and him like realizing like, oh my gosh, you know, this guy also wrote the song? Like, how does that work? And just his, he was just so, I mean, Cole just was like the sponge that couldn't get enough of it. And he eventually ended up doing like a little duo thing with another guy from, you know, that he went to school with. And they kind of started doing the little bar circuit thing too. But he was always, I mean, there wasn't a show that we did in the Southeast that he didn't find his way to. You know, he would I'd look out and be like, oh, there's the Cole, there's that Cole. That Cole guy. kid's here. Kid. <laughs> I remember the day that Luke called me and said, um, now, let me paint the picture. I was a solo, like I had zero employees, zero, no help. I, would, I had two small children and I literally would stay up every night. Probably, I mean, I would get them to bed and then go back to my email probably till two or three in the morning. We were booking flights. I mean, I was booking flights for radio tours and hotels and I mean it was nonstop. So I don't think I'd I don't think I'd ever been paid yet, which was fine. Um so I would work with songwriters kinda on the side and pitch their songs and just to have some income coming in, you know, for myself. So that's kinda how I made that work then. But I remember the day that he called and said, Hey, um, so Cole's I just got the phone with Cole and and uh, he really wants to move to town. Do you have a job for him? <laughs> and I go, Cole? Like, I remember stop. I go, Cole? Like, trying to think about it. And he was like, you know, the kid from Georgia. And I went, no, I don't have a job for Cole. I was like, how are we going to pay Cole? And I, he was like, oh, I just want to help him. He wants to move to town. I'm like, I get it, but we can't pay him. Like, I don't have a job for him. And we hung up and he was very, Luke was very disappointed. And I sat there and like 10 minutes later, I was like, hmm. So I called Luke back and I'm like, well, we do need somebody to sell your t-shirts. <laughs> and he went, perfect. I'll call you back. <laughs> and he, he hangs up and calls him. And literally Cole drives to town that night. Wow. 
He was that fired up. He was that fired up. He was ready to get on the bus. He was ready to go. So cool. If we had a bus, we probably didn't have a bus then, actually thinking back. Instead of driving day. himself to all the shows, now he's part of the team going yes. to the shows. Yes. And he's selling merch. But, okay, so how does he end up telling Luke or, or you or whomever, hey, I'm also, like, writing well, songs? We, we knew that he had the art, you know, the duo thing. So that wasn't a secret, you know. But he, he didn't, you know, Cole's, Cole is going to ease his way in. You know, he doesn't walk in a room and 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 demand everyone to know everything he kind of you know i think he sat back and kind of watched it and learned and he didn't do the artist thing for a while you know he was probably out with us selling t-shirts for probably two or three years before i ever really even saw him i saw him that many years huh oh yeah he did it i mean yeah for sure i mean he did it maybe i mean he probably he was out there with us definitely three or four years selling but I was going to say, like, it was a few years in before I saw him actively out there trying to write songs. So he and Michael Carter, Luke's guitar player, started getting in the back of the back lounge of the bus. And Michael wasn't really a writer at that time. He had had, like, a small deal maybe right when he first moved to town. But I think they just kind of taught themselves how to, like, they would do it every day. The two of them would sit back there every day and write. And I didn't hear any of the songs. I didn't really ask about him. And I think one, I, I don't, maybe Cole shared one with me and I was like, well, that's, that's pretty good. And then he eventually would occasionally share one. And I remember hearing like a demo session and there was, there was a song in there. I'm not going to remember the title right now, but I remember thinking that it was like the best thing that he had ever done. And I went and played it for Luke and I was like, hey, I think they're getting the hang of it. And Luke's like, really? Let me hear it. You know, he got all excited. And, and I mean, one thing I will say about Luke and Cole is the same. They both are, are truly champions for other people. Like, they do. Like, I watch both of them want other people to win and have opportunities. And they get, I mean, Luke gets fired up for new artists. And Cole does the same thing. I mean, they, they just love watching people in those, in those steps along the way. But, yeah, so he was our, our merch guy turned... Guy that's riding in the back of the bus. Mm -hmm. So for you, when do you go? Okay. Well, he, it's an investment for you. He well, he came. I could tell he was really starting to hate me out there, like selling the t-shirt part. He was really he had the rider bug bad, and um, so we pulled him off the road, and I went to Luke and I said, you know what? I'm like he's really doing well. I was like, I think I'm gonna try to help him find a publishing deal. And then I think at that point I had the idea to go talk to Luke's publisher and just see if they had any interest or any interest of doing something with us. Or I mean, I didn't really know. I was just talking through it with a guy named Troy Tomlinson at Sony Tree. And that is where Luke was a writer. And, you know, I remember we went in there and met with him and he's looking at us like, no, don't make us do this. <laughs> and I'm like, Troy, just, tr I mean, I remember, just trust us, just trust us, please. And he's like, do you know how many deals I've done like this and how they've gone, you know, with writer, with artists? Mm -hmm. And and I'm like, no, but just trust us, you know. And I'm like, we want to sign Cole and Michael Carter and they're going to, they're going to be amazing. And, you know, he really did not want to, but, uh, but the relationship was important to him and he was like, all right, we'll try it. And. It has paid off well. What was Cole, what was the first song that Cole wrote? Where you, 
that was like some had some you know substance to it that got some radio play or something? Um, I I think his first cut was Scotty Curry, Water Tower Town. I think that was the first one, and yeah. then he had a Craig. He and Michael had a Craig Campbell song. Ah, uh, what was the name of it? It literally was the like one of the longest songs on the chart that year. Can't Stop Loving You? No, no, no. Was it? Dang it. Uh, Craig Campbell or Craig? There are two Craigs. Craig mm-hmm. Campbell. Um, mm-hmm. What was the Craig? Because he got oh, dropped was, right in the middle. Of, well, so, so good. So, so it's Cole, a great song. I can't, I'm just blanking on it right now. But. Cole's writing, but mm-hmm. is, is he going, I also want to be an artist to you? He, I think he went and did a BMI. BMI um, does a retreat at Key West with songwriters. And I he went and did that one year, and I think that's when he got the bug back. Like when he, and he had a couple of songs that had been hits for other artists, and he did that, and the reaction, and he, uh. This is it. Out of yep, my head. That's it. Sorry. I it's out of my head. Yes. Name of it, yes, right, yes, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great little song. Yeah. This song, whenever Craig Campbell got dropped, they're not dropped the label, I think folded. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. The song was so good that my company, iHeart, was like, we're going to make it on the verge because the song is so good. And Craig was, I remember this whole thing going down. It was, and I'm, and it ended up, I don't know if it ended up being the longest running song, but it was, it, it was, was on the, the chart yeah, like a long Almost 60 time. weeks. Yes, a yeah. long time, a long time. Uh, with Cole, mm-hmm. as an artist, did you, did you see him and go, okay, this is the guy who's going to have a bunch of hits and get up and... No, not really, to be honest. I didn't at the time because, you know, he's he's a little he's he's grown into the artistry side. You know, he was a little more quiet. And he's mild mannered. Yeah, Even he's now mild. he's mild yeah, mannered, he's yeah. Mild. So I mean, did I think but I knew like the songs he was turning in and his writing, that part I knew was great. And he came in um and played <clears throat> me a song. Well he had the song called Let Me See Your Girl. And I loved it. And I had talked to um, Stormy and then John Marks about, like, you know, how does this program work that you guys do on XM at the time John was there? And um, they, at the time, when I asked them that question, FGL was the only person who had done their program. So I was just kind of inquiring about it because I knew that you didn't necessarily have to be signed and they would support it. You know, it was a little different angle. And he had agreed to um, play the song. <clears throat> and But in the meantime, Cole is texting me going, hey, I wrote this other song. I can't wait for you to hear it. I'm wait, dying for the demo. Da, 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 da. And he just kept talking about it. And one day he calls and he goes, are you in your office? And I go, yeah. And he goes, can I swing by? And I said, sure. So he comes in and he's kind of nervous. And he said, well, I got that song back I was telling you about. And I said, okay, awesome. He goes, can you, can you listen to it? I'm like, yeah. So he hands me, you know, his phone or whatever. We, I think it was a phone at that. And I plug it in and I'm just sitting there, head down, listening to the song. And he, told, he tells the story that, like, that I have no reaction and I'm not looking at him. And he is panicking because he thinks I hate it. And I get why he would think that looking back, but what I was really thinking the whole time I was listening to the song was, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with this? I mean, I really was like, this is so fun and so different and so good. And I, the song ends, I turn it off and I turn around, I look at him. I'm like, do you, 
you really want to be an artist. Like you've been on the road, you've seen what they do, you see what it's about. You really want to do it. And he goes, I really do. And I went, okay, because this is the song. And I mean, like, and then we both literally start jumping up and down in my office. And that song was? Chilling It. So crazy. That, that, That whole how one of them rolls into the other. It was insane. I mean, and, and at that time, the only artist I'd ever shopped a deal was Luke. When I was working with Kelly Bannon, she was already signed to a, a, a label at that time. But, um, you know, I started, you know, well, people started calling me because they started seeing the streams and then what was happening and he had no deal. And that doesn't... Oh, what a good position to be in. That doesn't happen often, right. obviously, in this town. Maybe a little more now with, you know, more streaming services, I guess. But, um, you know, it was overwhelming. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I think he had an offer from every label but one. And so then I was in a whole... I mean, I'm just begging people to give Luke a deal. <laughs> and we had one offer. Yeah. One and a half. Somebody else was about to. And I'm like, no, they came to the table. We're just going to take this one. But with him, it was a different thing. And I, it was, I mean, I learned, it was learning something new, really. I mean, which has been a fun thing for me personally, like learning. You know, I feel like I don't stop learning. And nor will you ever. And if you ever feel like you don't need to, then you're, you're done anyway. Like, I mean, like, you know, doing a deal for American Idol, like doing mm-hmm. a deal on that level, like just what you have to learn to like be in the game. <laughs> The game's a funny thing. And I wonder, because you've done so many things, and there are a lot of, I get a lot of messages from new artists in town that listen to this podcast, because mm-hmm. we get deep into the weeds about right. songwriting, and mm-hmm. a lot of the artists come in and talk about, um, you know, second and third layer type things that you don't really talk about on the radio. Mm-hmm. So what would you say, like, what's, what's the key to an artist career, to starting one? It's the age-old question. Like, what advice do you give somebody coming to town? Well, I mean, I think... I think it's about, one, the people you surround yourself with and that they really do believe in you and that you trust them because it is, I mean, I talk to all my clients every day of my life, pretty much. I mean, you are in the trenches with them. So, I mean, make sure you surround yourself by people that, I mean, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to, you're going to be mad at somebody and somebody's going to take advantage of you more than likely somewhere along the way of life. (laughs) You know, I mean, I mean, I think I mean, Luke and Cole both have examples that they would go, you know. But, you know, you just got to look at it like, for some reason, that was part of my path, and that's what it was, but move on, and, and we'll do the things we can control. I, I think that's part of it to me. Like, it's like, stick true to who you are and what you're about and what you want to say. And it goes back to your critic thing. I mean, that was another advice or that I would try to, you know, tell any of them when they feel like they're getting beat up about something. It's like, you know what? All you can do is you. And somebody's going to have an opinion and they're always going to say something, but be you and be true to you and don't get heady with it. You know, I mean, there are all those phases. I mean, you talk, I mean, I think about, you know, as an artist has their fifth and sixth album, you're always questioning like, what do I do next? What do I need to do next? You know, and that's good. You should always question that. But you, I think if you get too heady with it, you'll, you'll be in a mess. As I don't know. I think I did not even answer. No, no, the you did. You did. You definitely did. In a way. So, what is it? If someone's going, man, I think I'd like to be a manager. Mm-hmm. Like they go, I love music. I say run. I'm kidding. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> what, so what? In um, to, to condense it, sixty yeah. seconds. What does a manager even do in your mind? 
I mean, there. I guess I think of it like there is nothing that happens in that artist's career that the manager is not involved in or signing off on or approving. Nothing. Like if you, I mean, unless it's something a fan has done or put up, but like anything that you think of a photo, a social post, you know, are they on a show? Are they not on a show? Or, you know, what's the song? I mean, you're involved in every single aspect of what is happening. So it's a lot. You have to be crazy organized and then you're still not organized enough. (laughs) And it doesn't turn off. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this special of the BobbyCast, behind the scenes of the music industry. Hope you learned a lot about how the business works, how labels, managers, radio, producers, how they all work and how they have to work together. So thank you and make sure you're subscribed to the BobbyCast wherever you are listening to this and please give us five stars. We don't want to go off the air. We don't want them to fire us. Five stars, please. I'm going to cry. Okay, thank you. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to a BobbyCast production. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net.